everybody. It's the H Word. I'm Becky. Hi, I'm Dan. And um, here we are. It's um, at the time of recording. It's pretty. It's a pretty difficult time in North American news, at any rate. It's been an extremely intense week. Yeah. Um, how are you doing, Dan? Uh, you know, not not great. Um, yeah. It's hard to. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I certainly don't feel hopeful. Um, and I, uh, I don't really know what to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And if like, you know, if it's time for people like us to talk or just listen or I don't know. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I will say I, I had a couple thoughts this week. So even before the real protest began and that I was starting to feel like, the same feeling I had when we started this podcast, the same reason that I wanted to ask this question, which was just like a feeling of overwhelmed helplessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, and I think that is important to recognize. And I think it's, um, I think I think there, you know, in in that feeling, is where you sort of start to find some shapes in the darkness of what you want to do. You know, like there, there. I think what happens is a, a hunger grows, and you want to do something to um, allay the hunger or stay the hunger, and uh, you know, sometimes it'll just be something that is presented to you that you just grasp onto because it's the first thing you see, but that can be enough. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the donate to this legal fund or to, uh, um, you know, raise certain voices or to uh, call your MP or, or, uh, you know, you know, some small act that even if it's just to get rid of that feeling is, um, is something. Yeah. And I mean, um, it's, it's, it's extremely dark times, but, but I, I do see hope in things like revolution, potentially, um, voices are being heard. And, and the thing is like, you know, given where this pandemic's at in a lot of ways, cause we've been sitting here for so long, things have gone, this is the new normal. And that, that phrase gets tossed around a lot. Um, but one of the things that's come out this week is like, there's, there's so much, generational long-term fucked upness that has to be addressed and it's being addressed i mean yeah it's being heard um we have lines of communication to get information out i've seen a lot of resources they're like white folks read this educate yourself educate the other white people you know have these conversations about uh race and racism in north america i've seen a lot of posts about toronto saying toronto and canada if you think this isn't happening here you're fucked yeah well it very specifically is happening here yeah Yeah, but um i mean i think about trying to get that information out and trying to trying to sit with more and more and more of what i don't know right now Mm -hmm. so there's something to do but it's 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 extremely overwhelming and extremely upsetting yeah and and it's it's what you don't know but it's also what you haven't felt Mm. and and to to extend that um, into the unknown of like, I have not experienced life in this way. 
Well, this what's interesting about the interview that I have today is that we recorded it earlier in the week, um, and a lot of these themes come up because I think it's just what a lot of people are sitting with in general. Um, it's my friend Tim Baltz, who's American. Yeah. Lives in Los Angeles, not to be confused with the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls, mm-hmm. who, yep. as we record this, is currently, I think, apologizing to the state of Minnesota or something. Um, but it's an interview with him. Um, a lot of it to do with sort of sitting in those feelings in America and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Let's listen to that. Okay, great. Bye, Dan. Bye. It's Becky. I'm back, and I'm really excited to have a guest uh, all the way from Los Angeles. It's my friend Tim Baltz. Tim, hi. Hi. How are you? Um, <laughs> I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> we said this. We went through the same thing before we started recording. I know. I'm trying to be. It's just a. <laughs> yeah. It's reflexive. It's reflexive. Yeah, I'm trying to be honest, um, but I'm also trying to be to not be a downer in life right now. I hear you. It's a struggle to um, kind of find this new balance uh, in terms of attitude and productivity and managing expectations. Uh, There are days that are, you know, compared to where we were at before all this, there are days that are bleak, real low. Yeah, I actually um, am maybe in the midst of a a multi-day stretch that was quite difficult. Slept for an entire day, just couldn't get out of bed. And uh, then last night I was up in bed trying to fall asleep until seven in the morning. Ooh. It was, it was awful. <laughs> I've, been have, I've been having some, uh, like, slightly more hours of the wolf, if you know that expression. No, what's hours of the wolf? That's, that's about, like, three hours into sleeping, um... Once you've you know you like you've settled down into into REM sleep, uh, your defenses are completely down. Your guard is completely down. You'll wake up and kind of like the recesses of your brain throw the worst possible thoughts at you, Ugh. and you're defenseless against them. Um, and so it's it's really easy to kind of just like latch onto those in your like half awake, half asleep. Uh, brain, you tend to, you know, especially I think creative types or anyone with an imagination to use, uh, will like quickly build on those thoughts and your normal defenses to say like, well, okay, pump the brakes. Like this is a worst case scenario. They're just not there. And so you get to a worst case scenario really fast. And that's called the hour of the wolf where you're kind of looking at your, yourself in the most naked raw terms and, and imagining the worst. So this happens, sorry, three hours into sleep, you kind of wake up a bit and have horrible thoughts? Yeah. For, I, well, I mean, it's not, I think it's it's kind of common to most people around two or three in the morning, you wake up and, and uh, you know, if you've had a, a nightmare or something. Oh, okay. Um, it, it doesn't happen that often to me, but it's just a term to kind of um, puts a finer point on what we experience when we wake up in the middle of the night and... Um, and have bad visions, I guess. Well, yeah, and it feels like, I mean, from just the the few people I have contact with still, that, like, dreams are really amping up. Yeah. Like, we have a lot to process every night. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it is. And so there's there's a much more vivid quality to what we're dreaming and um I don't know. I I've been okay. I've had a couple I've probably only had like two or three really bad nights of sleep, you know, where I get like two or three hours and then I'm I'm just up two or three hours into it and and that's it. Then I'm I'm just awake, I guess, for the day. Oh, I almost did that last night, but I, I, I don't know what I did. I guess I woke up at noon after falling asleep at seven thirty. <laughs> yeah, it's gross and not satisfying. No, yeah. and it's gotten really hot here, so like the sun's coming in, the room's heating up. Anyway, um, but this thing you said about productivity is interesting. Also, how are you feeling about that? Uh, I, I've been a little fortunate in that, um. Right before this, the pandemic happened. I had uh, I left for season two of, of Righteous Gemstones, and that was in Charleston. Oh, yeah, and I was there for about two two weeks before I had to come back. And we got two days into filming, and um, so obviously the interruption of that was difficult. But right before that, um, my fiance Lily and I had pitched um, a project and had uh, had a few people, a few production companies interested, and so. Uh, that was kind of like slowly just humming along in the background and that's gotten to take a little bit more of our focus. So we've had something to focus on and then another project with a friend that, uh, where we're meeting weekly. So at the very least, when I feel completely bottomed out, I've had this attitude of like, well, I'll, I'll do one thing a day. Even if that one thing is like 20 pages of this French book I'm trying to get through, um, that's it, I've lowered my expectations big time. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to get across. How about you? Uh yeah, sometimes it feels like uh I don't even get the one thing done. And that mm-hmm. feels bad. <laughs> I mean, time is moving in a really different way, but I towards had to sometimes be like you did this today. You did something, you know? Yeah. I've um I finally yeah. watched The Sopranos. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. We had we had sadly just finished that before I left for Charleston. We were kind of rushing to do it. And then I got back and I was like, well, I guess we'll watch the American office again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty to watch out there. And you, so I was in LA when I saw you, like right before all this. It might have been right before you left. Yeah, well, it was kind of late February-ish, right? Yeah, I, we got back March 1st and I could feel, I was happy to be coming back to Canada at that point. Yeah, I think I left March 4th and was very skeptical that, that everything was going to be okay and uh, and was kind of surprised that, that everything was was kind of moving along. But I, most productions were in that way. We didn't know if these were going to be isolated bubbles. We No one really knew what to expect. And obviously we were, you know, so focused on our president's tweets instead of what experts in other countries were reporting that um, it just kind of did its thing the tweets are compelling <laughs> i have to say <laughs> i still check in on them and and I, I remember like you know after he got elected i would kind of compulsively check what his twitter every day and then i was like i have to stop doing that but do i it's he's good at something yeah yeah he's uh you know we're in an age of shamelessness and uh so many people are benefiting from that yeah the shameless are are really going wild yeah and it's also like it's like this is like the end game of brand culture that you only need to be a brand and nothing else oh i'm God. sorry <laughs> no it's okay <laughs> i think about brand stuff with with comedy and and acting a lot 
Um, cause it's odd to be, you know, I'm, I'm 39. So I've seen a lot of people's careers rise and fall at this point. Right. Um, and it's funny to watch someone, uh, that you think is very good, have a brand that is different than what you think their work is or who you think they, they are personally. Oh, like what? Um, I mean, you don't have to name names, but like in the abstract, uh, in the abstract, I mean, they're like I've known really catty people whose forward-facing brand is um, just sunshine and positivity, blown-up buttholes. You know, right, I mean? right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. I think we all know uh, that archetype. Yes, absolutely. Yeah that that one's really that one's really familiar. Yeah. Um, but there there are just so many things mixed into what makes a not a successful personal brand, but a passable personal brand, something that can get clicks and likes. And I, I don't know if that has any worthiness. Now, they're, they're like artistically, yeah. you know, like does it help actually make some quality product? But then you look at what gets the most eyeballs and views, and, and this, you know, I think relates to um, that man's tweets too. Yeah. Uh, not everyone's looking for great content. A lot of people are just looking for grist for the mill. And the mill is their own brain and the grist just has to be like stupid drama from brand, personal brands that, uh, you know, are just puking out their personalities. And that's fine. That's actually a good lesson to learn because you're like, well, that works. So add it to the list of things that works. Um, It's just, it's going to be forever odd for me for how I grew up looking at good content, what I thought was good content. Um, and then you you know you get into the actual industry, into the the bones of of how things are made, and, and you start to think of it differently. You 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 have to think of like what sells as opposed to just uh, what you want to make based on your own sense of quality. I've absolutely been thinking about this. I'm 42, so around the same age. So I feel like we also watched like the rise of personal branding. It mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't like you said it wasn't there on the stuff that we were weaned on artistically, right? Yeah. And and like, I understand if if someone's like 19 and they look at the landscape, they see what works and they copy what works. That's totally understandable. But that there is a generational divide, I think. So when I see people that are my age that are like, I'm all in on brand on brand culture. um, It's just it's just odd because, you know, it's a conscious choice. I'm almost more willing to give younger people a pass on that because you're like, well, it's not even a conscious choice. They don't know any better. You know, there's there's nothing. I wouldn't assume with them that that they're like, actually, the world could be different. Um, you know, we just have to change the consent that we're manufacturing to this over here, and we'd all be better off for it. Uh, they don't know. They're trying to be successful in a gig economy, which is punishing for millennials, punishing for everybody. Um, so. Imitation is just a, a product of that. Whereas, like with you know, when you see someone just kind of change their brand midstream, knowing that they came up at a time without with way less brand culture, it's it's just it's just it's odd. It's interesting. It takes a commitment that I look at social media. Uh, I like I don't look at social media. I think that way to me. It seems so disposable. Why would I commit that much energy to it, even if it's easy to figure out? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I've gotten more into Twitter during the pandemic. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but I absolutely don't consider it my job, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like yeah. there's things about there's things about social media, um, sort of in the the earliest conceptions of the internet that I like. Like it's a way to connect with people. And one of the things I've liked about Twitter is like I can be a bit of a sad sack, and everyone's sort of a sad sack now. And to share that perspective, yeah. and 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 to me, that's part of the reason why I got into being a performer was to say like you're not so alone if you're having these feelings, right? And I have found that Twitter yeah. can be used that way in a way that is sort of, it's way less mediated than having to pitch and try to get a television show made. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the pitch process, we just went through it for uh, production companies and we pitched to about a dozen places. And uh, it was fascinating to watch the reactions and then us consciously, unconsciously kind of making tweaks um, to how we were pitching and, and the product itself. Uh it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's detailed. There are certain rules and unwritten rules. And, um, you think like, oh, I'll just lead with honesty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll just, I'll just say my truth at, at every moment. And you're like, no, you actually have to read between the lines constantly and be saying a mix of that and what people want to hear. Uh, because it's really about them being able to see the idea clearly. Yeah. Not even what y your idea, just the how the idea shapes itself in their brain, you have to respect that and continue to help that vision get clearer in their head. Um, and hopefully that's close to what you have in your head. Yeah. And so, and there is a skill to that. I know I feel, I mean, I feel very similarly. I'm like, well, if I just pitch my idea and if they like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. It's like, no, there's so much more nuance involved. Yeah. And you know, you yeah. have to know your demographics and how is this going to sell advertising? Because that's what it does. It's really repetition is the thing that makes it the most comfortable inside your own head. Because um, I, I had trouble with it, I think, for a long time just understanding. Because I think uh, my ideas would hit me in a lightning flash more often than not. And, uh, and so I just would see them clearly in my head. And the act of going from that to a product on a page that's clear is one thing. And then to get it on a page and then to say it again out loud to someone else um, and have that be just as clear and exciting is like it really can knock a, an idea you think is good down a lot of pegs in your own brain. Right. You really make you think like, wait a minute, maybe I didn't think this out thoroughly enough. Um, well, and you you and I know each other from the world of improv where, you know, you work with people you've trained in a way where you have a great idea, you say something, and if you're on stage with other wonderful people, they do get it that quickly with very little explanation as to what you're talking about. So mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I feel that like I'm used to my ideas being understood, but it's also by other people like me. And you need to collaborate with people who are not like you to make television, right? Yeah, that's true. We, I mean, we're lucky to have those communities, but they're always bordering on echo chamber, mm. um, which, you know, is a threat to the skills that you ultimately need to develop uh, beyond any echo chamber. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely missed Chicago for a really long time and before I left Chicago, had this like 
kind of rising anxiety and paranoia because I was starting to understand what I didn't know. <laughs> um, in Chicago and maybe Toronto is the same way. Like you don't necessarily know what you don't know. So you're kind of blissfully ignorant and you're just hoping to get, well, in our case, because we're Americans, you're just hoping to get SNL. Like that's the golden ticket out of yeah. town. But there's so much else to make. And in order to make those different styles, you have to learn a lot. And since it's so sketch and improv focused, you're not learning those things. And uh, personally, for me, I'd started doing this um, commercial campaign as this de facto spokesman for this like lower um, cell phone company. And I was traveling probably every like two or three months and doing, I don't know, anywhere from like two to five commercials for them. Oh, wow. Which was a gr- great learning experience. The money was fine in hindsight. Um, but more importantly, like, you know, I'd go to New York or I'd go to LA and and there were certain things that I was really good at because of the kind of formation that I'd had in Chicago. And then there were other things that I was really bad at because I'd never done it. No matter how good I'd been at improv, I'd, I had no experience. Uh being on those kinds of like sets. what were you bad at and um i mean they were like they were technical things uh which you know you can't know until you just get humbled um yeah like holding know, the credit card the right angle every single time that kind of stuff yeah that stuff like those are the things that like prolong takes you know yeah. and if you know all those things and you nail the dialogue like you can get out in three or four takes um, but if you're constantly having to adjust these little things, it affects the dialogue. And like, next thing you know, you're at like 12 takes yeah. and your confidence is just cratering. Uh, so that was hugely important for me, but then you would see how scripts would change and get tweaked a little bit. And something that you thought was great on paper then doesn't work on screen. And then the editing and rewriting process and like, uh, you know, exploration process from, brainstorming to editing to acting to looking at what you got on tape and tweaking that and doing another take like that you can't simulate that in improv and sketch you have to just go screw up a bunch um yeah and i, I mean some people some people are naturally good at it but that was something that, that I, I felt like the more i learned it the more i was like i gotta i think i have to move I have to get to LA. I have to get to a place where I can do this. We can do it all the time. Well, I was going to also say like, you know, the standards are high, but also, you know, there's some amount of leeway if you improve really quickly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There were certain things I was good at. (laughs) I think you're a very talented actor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) default has a couple things he's good at. Um, (laughs) There there were were certain, there were a couple things. Like I was very good at, at memorizing, you know, and I could, but I, it made me a little too rigid at first. Um, and uh, I would look at people that seemed sloppy and uh, watch them get rewarded. I'd be like, I don't get how to do that. And uh, I was kind of mystified by that for a little while, like how to get loose and get a good take at the same time. Like that, I had to I learn that. I absolutely feel that I'm in the same boat. And, and also because even though improv is sloppy and messy, like... It's that you're you're thinking about the whole show while, you, while you're doing it, whereas you can kind of slop mm-hmm. around sometimes, and the the fat can get cut out later. As long as the, there's good yeah. stuff in there, it doesn't all have to be perfect in a weird way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, that's a weird inverse between 
improv can be like the the most perfect show where you know not a single line is is wasted it's all useful and you're using all of it especially when you're playing with someone that you know really well or you click with uh whereas you know if you if your take goes 10 minutes like you know nine and a half minutes of it can be crap and then you look brilliant if you just cut out the 30 seconds (laughs) if you have the right editor um i usually tim i forgot to ask or i just didn't yet but who are you? What do you do? What's your story? And kind of like you've touched on Chicago and stuff, but um, I guess what's the life the life arc so far? Well, I am the son of an immigrant. My mom's from northern France. She came to the U.S. in 1970 to be a Montessori teacher, and my dad met my dad um, in my hometown, and he was a professional stage actor at the oh. time. Um, he toured with the Goodman and. Uh, and then that kind of like ran out of steam by the time my sister was born in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and he became a, a picture frame. Uh, he opened a picture frame store in my hometown. And uh, it was a great little store. And he kind of hung on because the Christmas season saved him every <laughs> year. And he had that for 20 years. So I grew up I grew up with the two of them. They were great parents, but it was, uh, we didn't go out. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, you know, like I qualified for free lunch and Pell Grants, uh, which if you're American, you know, you know what that means. Um, but we, we also got to visit my grandparents in France. So it was this odd mix of growing up in like a kind of depressed blue collar prison town and then getting exposure to, um, you know, French culture through my grandparents' eyes. So like the, you know, like the thirties, forties, fifties culture of (laughs) France. Uh, and it, it created this odd kind of dichotomy where I saw culture in these through this arbitrary lens, uh, which could be very frustrating, but I think helped me develop some comedy. What do you mean, arbitrary lens? Well, uh, like different cultures do different, you know, they drink glasses of water differently. They, they approach, uh, you know, salt differently. They, uh, they say hello differently. Like these things are all like they're, you can do it in any number of ways. So people being so steadfast about how it's right. done, which a lot of, because I grew up in America, that's the lens that I focused on. Um, they seemed so steadfast and stubborn about things where I'm like, well, you know that this other culture does it completely differently. And I went to Belgium a couple times and they did it even differently than the French and their next door neighbors. It'd be like Indiana doing things differently than Illinois, you know? Uh, and that created this odd sense of uh, not nihilism, but maybe like, like a existentialism. Like it, it doesn't really matter. And yet I was surrounded by people for whom like, you know, cultural traditions that had only existed for a couple decades were like, you know, written in stone. Um, anyway, I, I think I developed a sense of humor and I, I was naturally very good at sports. And so I got very competitive at that as a way to kind of build this shield around me for not being looked at because I was different. Right. Um, cause even, even though it was a diverse town, no one else aside from my sister was half, half French and poor. Right. So, uh, it was, and that's been something that over the course of my life, I've, I've, uh, anyone who like understands that can, can actually kind of, um, demonstrate that, that they might know what that felt like it has been very dear to me. And I, as a result, I know a lot of some of my closest friends are people that come from, uh, two cultures, hmm. um, or, uh, are comfortable going from kind of like 
cultures of, you know, poverty to the cultures of, uh, you know, more academic, um, artistic class, if yeah. you will, uh, which I, I appreciate. I, th- I think I, I view culture as just something that you can understand and it's not really written in stone and hopefully we're all moving towards, uh, like, a uh, an understanding of problems, uh, that are kind of like solution oriented, but I don't think as a country we're there. Yeah. So it's an odd resignation to kind of gain a greater understanding and, and realize like, actually, if one side proposes a solution, the other side is going to sabotage it no matter what, because if one side has good solutions, then they'll just keep winning forever. And that can't happen. That's like, what a shitty, stupid roadblock stalemate to to find ourselves at culturally yeah how are you feeling about being an american right now or are you french now (laughs) i was just in france before this all happened we got engaged there um which which meant a lot to me i got to introduce lily to my my family up north my cousins and uh and that that meant a lot she met them for the first time and that wasn't something that i'd ever done before so i was I have a lot of pride in that. I that country has its own set of problems, yeah. but I, I love that culture and I love American culture too. Look, we're really lucky. I'm in a place right now where people are taking this seriously, and there are a lot of resources and, um, uh, for lack of a better term, wealth available. So, you know, in a I I don't know in a perverse way, I'm lucky to be American right now in the place where I'm. How at. is it perverse? I don't- well, because other people don't have that. You know, we have a lot of resources. We have a lot of wealth. And <clears throat> that means that we can weather something like this well currently, um, whereas other countries with less resources can't necessarily do that. I think most Americans don't put themselves in the position of someone from another country. American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, like those are very real things um, that are kind of cooked in to the American yeah. psyche through history textbooks and and learning and, and attitude. And even though it's a trigger for the right to say that people are entitled, that doesn't stop people from being entitled. So I don't know. I, I feel like I know more about what this country really is more than ever before. What are you learning? Um, I mean, I given that I grew up in like a, a diverse, poor town, I thought I had a good handle on white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't. I thought I had a good handle on white privilege because when you come from a lower class and you, you get to move through the class system yeah. because of the code switching that you're, that you're taught, because it's easier to go up than it is to go down. People don't want to go down. They they would rather die than than lose <laughs> their their class privileges. Um, but right, thanks to improv, the arts, education, you know, parents that valued those things, I, I've been able to to move up. And I think at first I was very shocked. I knew what racism was. I don't think I knew what white supremacy was because racists to me are dumb. White supremacists are dumb. They have bad ideas. They, and they're bad ideas because they always backfire on them. You can't try to exclude someone without producing a bad idea. Right. Like good ideas are inclusive. Um, so the second you start to exclude people, like your ideas are, are going to fail. And that's why problems 
the problems that we have are systemic problems is because they stem from exclusionary practices uh, that benefit certain people and don't benefit others. Now, what is new in my understanding of that in America, because I always understood that, um, is how people don't even fucking understand that that's happening. Yeah. They just don't. You can talk about these things and it sounds like Greek to them. They don't. First off, they're super angry when you talk about privilege and racism because a lot of it is unconscious. Yeah. Um, and I, I struggled with recognizing my own privilege. When you grow up with no money and you're white, I think it's really hard to see how other people view you as privileged. That's really hard. Yeah. And and it's not like, oh, poor me. It's I'm just saying it's taken me like the last two years to just sit and look at it and listen. And and that's that's where I'm at. As an American right now, I'm just I'm listening to the people that I recognize now have been pointing out the systemic flaws uh in vain. And I hope that I just keep learning from that. That that's where I'm at. And I I you know, give thanks and I'm fortunate. And I can say those things while also saying I've worked my fucking ass off to get to where I'm at. But the, those two things aren't mutually exclusive and one doesn't cancel out the other. Um, yeah, well, it, it's like that thing you were saying about even just transitioning from Chicago to L.A. and not knowing. And like we have to sit in the space of knowing that we don't know. Yeah, which, you know, that discomfort, you would think that that improvisers would be so comfortable with that discomfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we just got like comfortable with a flavor of discomfort, I think. Usually. Well, and discomfort under our own control. Yeah. Yeah. Not just larger, chaotic, constant discomfort. I was reading actually last night, I was reading an interview with a, a Satanist performance artist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> the definitions of Satanism here are pretty interesting in that sort of art world. But she was talking about her work being inherently uncomfortable for people because people had to get used to discomfort more in this mm. world. And there was actually another interview I did for this podcast with my friend Jordan Foisy, who's working up some thoughts about consumer culture being about comfort all the time. That this, yeah, it, these are yeah. not natural states for us. No, that's that's... My mom was born in 1944. She was uh, in the north of France, which was occupied at the time. Um, and, you know, she's had some, she's had a, a wild life. And I don't like to talk about it too much because I like to keep that private. Yeah. But um, I think a lot about like the conditions that her or some of my other ancestors, U.S. or French, have lived through. And I think about this book that I read in college. One of my majors was communication. And I was kind of fascinated because I, you know, I was started college in 99 to 03. And so like internet studies, media studies uh, were really burgeoning at the time. And a lot of them were being pioneered by disciples of Marshall McLuhan, right. the great Canadian futurist, hmm. you know. And, and uh, there's this one guy, Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And... It's, I mean, it's incredible. He wrote it in like 85 or 86 and it, it similar to McLuhan has predicted so much of what the future is. Right. And we're addicted to convenience. Um, and anytime we're inconvenienced, like, 
like the response is rage. And I think that a huge amount of convenience is tied to kind of like um, to race in America. Uh, and as a result, when we are inconvenienced in the slightest, like rage is the most rational response. I think there are some people who can overcome that rage and see clearly. And there are other people for whom that rage is so native is such learned behavior that like when you talk to them about this, it only enrages them further. Right. Cause you're just perpetuating the thing of making them uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And no one wants to be uncomfortable. So many of us have, have like, I even look at my childhood, which, you know, there are certain things that in hindsight I was left wanting uh, a lot and, you know, I didn't have, didn't have much, but it was still like a level of convenience and things provided for that, uh, that, you know, if, if now I've accepted, like, if that's all I have, like, well, that's, that's okay. Like we can get by. I got by then. My parents got by then. Yeah. We're getting by now with way less. All the projects have, you know, kind of gone away. We're left to our own devices and, and, and that's okay. But man, when that first, those first waves were coming in March of realizing like what was happening. And then by late March, early April, how long this was going to yeah. last, you know, if you're observant, <laughs> this could last another year and a half. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, uh, that like reckoning with comfort and convenience, um, started to slowly change and i'm i'm grateful for that i mean that's that's the hope in all of this like like we were talking about before we started recording um is that there are certain things that we've all become addicted to that we don't we don't need and people of our age are uniquely positioned to actually remember not having them yeah yeah i think i mean i'm watching old television and thinking about how like our our generation had kind of too much we had video games and stuff like that and new levis but it's just expanded from there it's, be, oh it's become God. so much more disposable clothing and i don't know just shit like packaging junk food absolutely everything i remember in first grade going on a field trip to a recycling plant in my hometown and thinking damn this is a problem like a seven or eight year old being like, this is, there's too much waste. Yeah. <laughs> and then every once in a while, now I think about it, I'm like, we have to have multiplied our waste by like 5,000 times and no one addresses it. And back then, it, like we were addressing it. Like there was reduce, reuse, recycle campaigns. You know, there was awareness that was spreading. Maybe it was just because I was in school. And so as a student, like you have conscientious teachers that are showing you this stuff and and you don't know that like actually the general public doesn't isn't aware of this and doesn't appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. But well they were using us as me, little I, soldiers. Like there were whole like yeah. anti smoking campaigns where I would come home and guilt my father about smoking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God yeah, bless. they'd send us home with like magnets to put on the fridge, being like, Daddy, please don't <laughs> I mean, secondhand <laughs> smoke is a problem and I guess that's the point. But like It is. You know, I look back on that and I was like, wow, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my dad, he smoked cigars. um, And uh, I remember once I was out on the porch with him, uh, this probably had to be like, I don't know, maybe like five years before he passed away. 
and he he didn't pass away from emphysema or anything like that. He had ALS, which is another yeah. story. But uh, but we were you know we we're kind of like trying to coax him to stop smoking, and and my mom would say her piece, you know, and and you know they have their own relationship, so you know I don't know how that was said, but my mom made it clear like you don't smoke in the house, you don't smoke in the cars, you know I'd like for you to quit, and and you know his response makes it clear he's not going to quit, and then my sister would come home from New York and. She'd be like, you can't do this, you know, and she'd go directly at him and he wouldn't like, you know, that would be uncomfortable. And then, and then they'd be like, hey, you know, you need to say something. You're his son, you know, between men, you say something. I'm like, oh boy, this is not our relationship, but okay, here it goes. And uh, we were out on the porch and I was like, I was like, hey, pop, uh, you know, sure, you know, M and mom have gotten on you about smoking cigars and he, he gives me a look like, Oh, you're going to try your hand at this? <laughs> and I go, you know, you've had a good run. Maybe you could stop. <laughs> he looks at me and he busts out laughing. He goes, you've had a good run. <laughs> oh. Just laughed like, like, that's a new one. <laughs> you've had a good run. <laughs> Said it a couple more times under his breath, kept smoking, and then was like, all right, let's go inside. <laughs> Did it work? Of course no. not. <laughs> In fact, once he, yeah, once he, I mean, deep into him having ALS when he couldn't use really his, his arms or his hands anymore, I'd, I'd go out on the porch and I'd hold his cigar for him. Uh, cause I was like, if this is your pleasure, you're going to have a gin and tonic. You're going to have a cigar. You get to call, you get to call your own out. Yeah. You know? Honestly, at that point, why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the thought of discomfort is so interesting to me. And so the silver lining to all this is this notion of some kind of transformation. But this conversation leaves me with the thought for the first time that that transformation could be to come out of this more at ease with discomfort. I haven't quite thought of that yet. And that's really cool, Tim. Well, that's a hard thing to internalize, you know. I, I say it; I might understand it intellectually, yeah. but I I haven't I haven't like in, internalized it and applied it to every corner of my life. I think watching my dad go through what he went with his illness and the courage it took to show up every day um, that transformed me, and. I, I look back now and I feel like a, a bit of a little shit sometimes because I wasn't, I, w- I wish that I had fully understood what he was going through more, you know, like obviously it was my father. I, I loved him. I, I, I was there as much as I could be. Um, of course, you know, I, I, I wish I could have gone home more. I, I wish I could have had more money to, to help out all those things. Yeah. But, um, I, I still like the more I think about it and that's what we have to do. We have to think about all this stuff. The more I, th- I think about it, the more I thought about it then. And, and now the more I recognize how, what he was able to do every day by showing up the courage that it took, the, the strength that it took, the, the attitude adjustments that he went through. Um, and, and there was, there was a moment, you know, he'd had so many tests done and, and he had, he had a trial run on this one kind of like, you know, 
medicine transfusion thing that like showed a little hope and then didn't. And you talk about a, a disease that like tests your ability to believe in hope yeah. at all. It definitely attack it attacks everything. And when we finally got a diagnosis, um, we went on our last vacation together to France and uh, as a family. Mm-hmm. And then and then we went up to the north. Uh, my mom's brother uh, was a doctor, and so he had arranged for my dad to see a, a ALS specialist up there um, to see if the diagnosis was going to be different than what he was getting in the States, you know? Yeah. It was, it was a mission of, of hope. And the doctor sat us down. You know, he'd gone through the tests and all that. And he sat us down and he said, uh, you know, I, I don't have any hope to give you. This is what you have. There had been conflicting, like no one in the U.S. wants to diagnose it because, you know, they don't want to be the bearer of bad news. They don't want to open themselves up to lawsuits and blah, blah, blah. Really? Because our, yeah, our healthcare system is so yeah. far. And also they want to keep testing you because that's how they make Ugh. money. Um, so if they give you a definitive <laughs> death sentence, essentially, they can't keep making Good money gravy. on you. And this doctor in in France said, this is what you have. Uh, I, I never like telling anyone that, that this is the diagnosis, but that's what it is. And I wish that there was something that I could tell you to give you hope for a treatment or something else. But the only defense that you have against this is your attitude and your quality of life. Hmm. Yeah. And that's where we all are, you know? What is our attitude through all this? Um, quality of life, obviously, probably going to take a hit because there's some comforts and convenience that we're lacking yeah. and that we may never get back. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't recenter our levels of appreciation or expectation um, and find meaning and, and gratitude and, uh, and appreciation to help our quality of life. It's, it's also really nice to think that we might be better and stronger and healthier without those comforts. Yeah, isn't that odd? But I, it's just a nice way to put it. It's positive. To be less yeah. comfortable. <laughs> well, there's certain things that are like they feel, they feel positive, you know, because they give us a dopamine hit and they, they seem to increase our comfort. But, uh, but we're getting addicted to them, and so the second they're taken away, we turn into like three-year-old brats. Yeah. Um, and obviously, then that is proof that maybe it's not so good for us. Uh, yeah. I. I. I mean taking all that into like what my day-to-day life is like now um you know it's not always <laughs> like i'm not at, at peace with any of what i just <laughs> yeah, said yeah 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 <laughs> i'm at, i'm at peace with it in the context of my father because i've it's been two and a half years since he passed away and i've, I've thought about it a ton and found ways to honor him and and uh and, and i you know i deeply appreciate the ability to do that but with this, I'm like, I, there are days where I'm, I'm so restless. I, I sit, you know, then there are days with like filled with clarity and I'm like, this is my new routine and this is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, I sleep through my alarm. I wake up at 1130 and I'm like, man, fuck this. I hate my routine. This sucks. <laughs> yep. 
Like, I, I want to go play basketball with some strangers. I want to, you know, go out to eat at my favorite restaurants. I, I, I want to travel, you know. I, I was thinking earlier, I, actually, right before we did this, I, th- I was thinking about the last time I came to Toronto. Yeah. Um, and doing the festival with, with all of you and how Marty wasn't there. And I was like, I was like, like in a funk for like a day. Cause I was like, God damn it. I came to Toronto. And I worked really here. hard like, to get Marty <laughs> Adams out for you too. <laughs> I, I know. I know. It was just bad timing. But, um, now the idea that I'm like, Oh, I can't visit my Toronto pals. Yeah. I mean, I just got back from LA and, and I was just like, I want to work towards, maybe I can move here. I don't know. I'm a bit of an old lady. It's a bit tough, but like, it just feels gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I mean, would that ever happen? It's, it's this odd, like, you know, like wartime mentality where we're slowly trying to figure out what the battle is, how to help, and hope that as many people as possible and, and the people that we love survive and get us to the other side of this where hopefully there is a better system in place. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in part why, like, recognizing what systemic flaws exist that got us here are super important right now. Like, the levers of power are definitely going to take this opportunity to consolidate power. Yeah, um, and that fight is longer than this virus is going to be. Ooh, yeah. But yeah, it's been um, really... I mean, if it wasn't laid bare before, it has been even more so now. Yeah. And, and yet, people are in a position where they are struggling to survive... And so the last thing, you know, they might view understanding these systemic flaws, which takes a lot of staring and understanding to, to really comprehend before you even start to take action. Um, like, I, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even at a point where I can start to take action. I'm still, I'm still just listening and trying to wrap my head around yeah. it. But for people that are trying to survive, like you come to them with this kind of stuff and they're like, I mean, their attitude has to be like, are you fucking kidding? Like, I'm trying to survive. (laughs) You want to fix the system? No, 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 no. I'm trying to get to tomorrow. That's daunting. Yeah. Well, then you and I are making television. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. So bizarre to find myself in a situation where I'm like, okay, so what are, what are my tasks today? Like, how do I, how do I keep myself busy and make a difference? I'm like, <laughs> how do I make a difference and oh. how do I make it pitchable and sexy? <laughs> yeah. And, and like zoom capable, you know? Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> how do I make this, this web series idea zoom dynamic? <laughs> oh my, is that where you're at now? No, but I mean, I, I, I'll try to, I'll try to have like at least one day a week where I'm just kind of like blue sky brainstorming. And and one of the things that I've thought about is, well, we're, if we're stuck in this, I'm already sick of how comedy, for instance, is delivered under these conditions. Right. You know, um, like I don't want to watch a zoom link of a bunch of people that, talking over each other or being polite, trying not to talk over each other. Like that's not ideal comedy circumstances based on what I've grown accustomed right. to. Um, now maybe I will grow accustomed to them, but I, I try to reserve like, you know, at least like a few hours a week to sit and think like, how do you deliver something that's dynamic under these conditions? I have not figured it out, but it's worth thinking about because when I watch stuff, my eye, you know, my spoiled eye is already annoyed. Yeah. 
because I can go, you know, watch HBO. I can go like watch Hulu and Netflix and, and, uh, and things look great and they sound great. So when I'm looking at someone's like, you know, Zoom comedy link, I'm like, oh, I don't, I can't. I'm not there yet. I'm not so thirsty for content that I'm there yet. <laughs> maybe um, they have to like embrace that... their DIY aesthetic more. It has to go back to the 90s and be like a mixtape or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Maybe I'm just being a little shit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, You know, I've interviewed a few comedians on here and we've all agreed we're definitely not in the most beautiful golden age of comedy right now. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, we can talk about it after. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, you don't need to tee me up on that. I try to keep those thoughts private anyway. <laughs> um, where can people find you online? Online, let's see, on Twitter, I am at, like, there's a tiny differences, uh, but on Twitter, I'm at Tim underscore Baltz, and on Instagram, I'm at Tim dot Baltz. Um, you know, so much fresh content every day for you, all you content hounds. <laughs> Tim's on Instagram Live for like uh, six hours a day. He's just right. He's just Constantly. thinking, <laughs> thinking out loud, trying to trying to steer teens the right direction. Um, you know, make sure all the adults in my life are making responsible decisions. <laughs> trying trying to get dads uh, to quit smoking. He'll talk to your dad. He's got the time. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's 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 where you can find me if you're in the states. You can. Uh, you can watch uh, Righteous Gemstones season one on HBO. You can watch Shrink on the NBC app. You can uh, Bajillion Dollar Properties is streaming on Pluto TV, and and you can get it on Amazon, I think. Um, yeah, I mean those are the and you, in Canada, in Canada, you can ones. watch Righteous Gemstones on, I believe, Crave. Oh, cool. Okay, it, Crave. Yeah, <laughs> Crave. But you have got to pay for the bonus plus version, I think. Anyway. Hey, go for it, Tim. Canada. This has been really amazing. Um, you're right. You were the most dour American I've interviewed, <laughs> which is not what yeah. you're normally like. So. No, it's not. But well, I, I guess it's these circumstances. But also, I I probably am not this dour all the time. And you just saying that word opened a door, and I was like, well, I haven't been in this room in my head in a little while. Tim, there's no one I'd rather walk through a dour door with than you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate Thank it. you so Thank much. You Okay, bye. The H Word Podcast is a proud member of the Shop family of productions. Follow the shop on Instagram at the underscore shop to. Artwork this week by Shannon Gerard and our theme music, as always, by Laura Barrett. For information on all our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at the H Word Pod or sign up for our newsletter at thehwordpod.com. Word